right, church. Well, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And I'd like to start out this morning by telling you a story about three guys, Pete, Judd, and Josh. Pete, Judd, and Josh. Now, Pete, Judd, and Josh, they were really good friends. They did everything together. In fact, uh, Josh had a bit of a teaching ministry where, where Pete, Judd, and Josh, they traveled around the country teaching and helping people. And one day, Pete, Judd, and Josh decided to go out and take their boats out into the middle of the ocean, and Josh was going to teach them how to go sailing, all right? Uh, Josh was pretty experienced at this, and so wanted to show Pete and Judd how to do this. So they each got into three different boats, all right? Three different boats, and they went out into the deep parts of the ocean. Now, Josh, he was an experienced sailor, and so he knew all about weather patterns and all that good stuff, and so he could tell that a storm was coming, And when he saw that bad weather was coming their way, what Josh did was he threw out his anchor into the water in order to secure and stabilize his boat. And Josh's anchor was, it was huge. I mean, imagine like just the largest anchor you've ever seen. We're not even sure how his boat held that sort of anchor, but it was just this huge anchor that he threw out into the ocean. And when that anchor hit the bottom of the ground, it really just dug into it. And it almost like it's formed one entity. It was like that anchor and the ground were meant to be together. It was a solid anchor, and it solidified the boat. I mean, there was obviously no way that Josh's boat was going to go anywhere with that kind of anchor. Now, Pete and Judd, they had anchors as well, uh, but they threw their anchors out, and in fact, their anchors did not hit the ground. (laughs) It was too short. They couldn't reach all the way, and so they tried to figure out what they were going to do. Judd decided to take some silver coins that he had with him on his boat, and he he put the coins kind of all around his anchor and, and hoped that, hey, the anchor can't hit the ground, but maybe this will weigh it down enough to give my boat the stability and the security that it needs. Pete also was trying to figure out what to do and realized that it was going to be impossible with what he had in his boat and what he had with his anchor in order to really stabilize his. So what he did was he threw his anchor out and anchored it to Josh's anchor. And then the storm came. Pete and Judd's boats are just getting tossed and turned every which way. And in the midst of the storm, both Pete and Judd, they start to really doubt and grumble against Josh. Like, why in the world did this guy bring us out here into the middle of the ocean? He knew bad weather was coming. This was a horrible idea. And they started to grumble so much in the darkness of the storm that Judd even decided maybe he was going to make plans to betray Josh and turn him into the sailing authorities when he got back to land, that he should never be a sailing instructor again. Pete also, in a similar manner, he started to deny in his heart that they had even been friends in the first place, that Josh even really knew what he was doing. Now, on the surface of the water, both Pete and Judd's boats looked like they were doing the same thing. They were getting hit by the wind and the waves. They were tossing and turning. Both boats looked like they had inexperienced uh, sailors sort of being affected by the storm. However, Judd's boat kept drifting further and further from the land. Pete's boat was getting hit just as hard, but below the surface of the water, he was anchored to Josh. 
And when the the storm subsided, Judd was sadly lost out at sea. However, Pete's relationship was quickly restored to Josh. Two people, two boats, who on the surface looked very similar, but something was happening beneath the surface that no one else could see. One of their anchors held, and one did not. Now we'll come back to Pete, Judd, and Josh here a little bit later on. But the questions that I have for you this morning, first of all, is this. Does your life have an anchor? Does your life have an anchor? Do you have someone or something who provides you the security and the stability that your heart craves? If you want any chance of having security and stability in this life, you need an anchor. But the question is not just do you have an anchor, but how confident are you that your anchor is going to hold? And this morning we are in Hebrews 6. And we're picking it up in verse 4, and you'll remember from last week that our author here is starting to teach about Jesus being our great high priest. But he has to take a brief interruption in all that priesthood teaching talk because he's concerned that the recipients aren't mature enough to really be able to handle this good, meaty, stake-like teaching about the priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek and all that good stuff. And so last week and this week are a part of this interruption to his priesthood sermons in order to give us a strong warning. And the reason that this warning is so strong is because he's concerned that the spiritual immaturity that he's calling out and what appears to be immature faith, he's concerned that that might in fact be a sign of no true saving faith at all. I mean, on the surface They might just look like inexperienced sailors, but he's concerned something much more serious is going on, that in fact they are not anchored at all. And that's where we pick it up this morning. Their their sluggishness, their dullness in hearing hearing God's word has been called out. They've been called to be diligent learners. They've been called to be diligent discerners. He's called them to not move on from the foundations of the faith, but to build upon them. And now he's going to confront what's below the surface. And he's going to confront whether or not they have an anchor and whether or not their anchor will hold. So let's pray. Once again, let's ask for the Lord's help. Father God, this is your word and these are your people. And Lord, we need your help. I need your help to preach this clearly. And Lord, we need your help to hear this and receive your word in a way that it would take deep root in our hearts, that it would transform us. So Father, please, please help us. Where else could we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hebrews 6, verse 4. All right, let's go. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Okay, from the start, let's just acknowledge 
that this is a difficult passage of Scripture to interpret. I mean, I tried to take a PTO day today, and it got denied, all right? But I'm here, and we're going to do this, all right? But Christians, listen, Christians for the last 2,000 years have acknowledged that this is a difficult passage to understand and interpret. In fact, there are about six or seven different views that Christians have had as to who this group of people in verses four through six, the author of Hebrews is referencing. All right, now I'm going to share five of them with you very quickly, and then I'm going to tell you where I'm leaning, and I'm going to preach what I think is best, um, which makes sense. Like, you can at least agree with the logic of that. I'm not going to preach to you something that I don't think is the best, all right? But, but this is a difficult passage, all right? Most difficult passages have like two or three different interpretations you could take on them. Uh, this has six or seven. So that's, that's how my week has been, okay? I don't know how your week was, but that's, that's kind of how my week has gone, all right? Now, let me remind you before we jump in, uh, uh, anytime we come across a difficult or confusing passage of Scripture, we don't want to just skip over it because it's difficult, but we want it to do a, few, a couple things to us. First, it should humble us. Difficult passages of Scripture and maybe confusing things we can't get our minds around, it should humble us, all right? It should humble us. And number two, it should leave us in awe of our Lord. It should leave us in awe of God. We should walk out of here this morning more in awe of him. Humbled by him, more in awe of him. And really, that's, that's true with any passage of Scripture, not just the difficult ones. Uh, all Scripture should humble us and should leave us in awe of God. If you're reading God's Word and you're finding your pride is getting built up, you are doing it wrong, okay? You are doing it wrong. So with that being said, let us come humbly and in awe of God this morning. If there was ever a passage of Scripture, we can be charitable to those that see this differently. This is it, okay? So let's do it. All right, here are the five views that I feel the argument, and I feel the arguments for each get better as we go along, okay? The first part of this sermon is going to feel a bit like a classroom because this is just a, a passage that needs that that classroom type teaching, okay? So here are the five views. View number one is the true believer view. This is the view held by many of our brothers and sisters from a more Arminian background, and they would conclude that verses four through six are talking about real believers who then lose their salvation, okay? That's view number one. View number two is the true believer under judgment view. It is the view that this is referencing, yes, true believers, but that don't necessarily lose their salvation, but instead they're being warned about temporary judgment or discipline that is coming their way. That's the true believer under judgment view. View number three is the pre-conversion Jewish view. And this is the view that this letter or series of sermons we know was primarily given to the early church who many people had come out of Judaism. And so this view would say that this was a warning primarily given to Jewish people who had entered into the new covenant community but had not yet been converted or regenerated. Okay, that's view number three, the pre-conversion Jewish view. And I can see that view. That view is actually going to have some overlap with where I land. View number four is the hypothetical view. Are you guys still with me? I know this is, hang with me, all right? Number four, the hypothetical view. This is the view that many people with more of a Calvinistic background have held to, like Wayne Grudem and others, and that this warning, uh, they view this warning as a hypothetical warning, that it was more of a rhetorical warning to try to wake people up from their spiritual immaturity, but that there wasn't an actual group of people that this falling away could happen to. That's the hypothetical view. 
View number five, and the view that I'm currently leaning to, is the unbeliever view. And this is the view that, that, that holds that this is a real warning, not a hypothetical one. This is a real warning to real people, and it was given to real unbelievers who were a part of the church. Now, to understand that view, we have to understand the reality that there are people who are a part of churches who on the surface look like just like, they, they look just like everyone else, and yet below the surface, they are not, in fact, anchored to Christ. Their hearts have not been regenerated. They haven't been born again. And you remember how we talked about this uh, a little bit previously in Hebrews with some of the other warnings, that there are a few different categories of people. All right, We have unbelievers that are outside the church. We have unbelievers inside the church. And we have believers inside the church. And you could maybe argue that there's a fourth category, believers outside the church, but really that should never be the case for long, right? I I think that would be a believer living in disobedience, all right? So you have unbelievers outside the church, unbelievers inside the church, and believers inside the church. And so here's where theologians since the Reformation have tried to help by giving us some terminology to describe this reality. And what they did around the time of the Reformation, it's continued till now, is they started categorizing the church as the visible and the invisible church. Now, the invisible church is not the church during COVID, all right? That was a common misconception this past year. Like when we were preaching here on Zoom and no one was here, it was easy to get our minds around the invisible church, right? But that's not what the invisible church is talking about, all right? The invisible church is the capital C, the universal church, the true born-again regenerate believers throughout the world and throughout history. Those that the Holy Spirit dwells within them who by grace through faith have been adopted into the family of God. The visible church then is this right here, right now. Look around. This is the visible church. Now, I actually don't think those labels are the best and the most helpful because what it has done, it it has given people a misguided thought that if the invisible church is the one that really matters in the end, then the visible church doesn't matter so much which is a view that a lot of believers have. Like, who cares about the local church? The universal church of believers is the one that matters. And I've always thought that it's been so strange that a people who worship a God who put on flesh, when those same believers don't like it when his bride does the same. Like, no, the the bride of Christ is supposed to be like her husband. We're to put on flesh, have local, real, tangible, flesh and blood churches. And if you love the invisible church, but you don't love the visible church, I would say you, like, you love the idea of church. You don't really love the church. And we as followers of Jesus, shouldn't we learn to love what Christ loves? And newsflash, he loves the church. He calls her his bride. Now, I'll, I'll admit, she's not a looker, right, at first, I mean, I grew up in church, right? I grew up a pastor's kid. But she's lovely because Christ loves her. And he's not done with her yet. And so visible, invisible church, that sort of helps us some, but I think that's not as helpful as if we go even further back in church history to Augustine, and he described the church as the pilgrim church and the eschatological church. 
Now, I understand why they started using visible, invisible, because they didn't want to have to say the word eschatological in front of their people. But the pilgrim church is the church right now, the flesh and blood, visible church. But many churches right now, you see, in the pilgrim church, we have people that have professed Christ, but have never really possessed him never really been united to him, never really been anchored to him through faith. But I would say they are a part of the body of Christ in the sense that they are a part of the pilgrim church. They are genuine members right here, right now. However, sadly, they are not permanent members. The eschatological church are the people that are gathered at the end when the bride of Christ celebrates the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so hopefully that framework sort of can help you start to see why I don't necessarily think this is a hypothetical warning. I do believe that there is a real danger for people in the pilgrim church of falling away into apostasy. And in fact, we've seen that more and more with some of those kind of celebrity type Christians in our, uh, in our country. We've seen this apostasy happen by those a part of the pilgrim church. And that phrase, fallen away, or that term apostasy that we see here in verse 6, that fallen away. Listen, that's not like you just doubting your faith for a day. That's not you falling back into a habitual sin or something like that. This falling away is talking about a deliberate, complete, and final rejection of Christ. And this is a real danger for some in the church. This is a real danger. And so I'm arguing that the group of people in these verses, they were legitimate members of the pilgrim church, but they were not permanent members. They had professed Christ. They had never possessed him. They had some fun sailing with him, but they had not by grace through faith been anchored to him. And now why can I say that? Why can I say that? Well, let's look at how this group of people is described. All right. Number one, they were described as ones who had been enlightened. All right, that Greek word enlightened here signifies a giving of knowledge by teaching. All right, this means that the people had received some sort of biblical truth and instruction through preaching and teaching. However, being enlightened doesn't always equal being born again or being adopted into the family of God. In fact, John tells us that Jesus, just by coming into the world, was in a sense giving light to everyone. John 1 verse 9. It says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so this very well could have been true of unbelievers, whether Gentile or Jewish, in the congregation, that they had received knowledge from biblical teaching. Well, how else does he describe them? He also describes them, number two, as having tasted the heavenly gift and having shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, to taste something in a figurative sense, which is what this is referencing, means to experience something. And the heavenly gift is likely referencing the Holy Spirit. However, some have possibly thought it was Jesus or even uh, participating in the Lord's Supper. But I would lean towards it's talking about the Holy Spirit. These people, being a part of the church, had really experienced some of the goodness and the grace of God by being a part of a community where the Spirit was at work. 
And I, I hope as people come into our midst that they would experience, that they would taste some of the working of the Holy Spirit as the, as the fruit of the Holy Spirit overflows out of our lives and how the Spirit works in our midst. I would very much expect anyone who comes into our church and our congregation to have tasted some of this heavenly gift. And that word shared literally means they were companions of. But again, to taste something or experience something is very different than possessing it. Being a companion is different than being a temple in whom the Spirit dwells. How else are these people described? Number three, these people are described as having tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Much like the Israelites who were rescued out of Egypt, but then later fell in the desert, they experienced the goodness and the power of God. They saw God part the Red Sea. They experienced him provide manna every day. And in the same way, there are people in the church who experience and witness the powerful working of God and yet still have unrepentant, unregenerate hearts. And when times of testing come, they bear no fruit. Many unbelievers taste and benefit from the word of God without being transformed by it. Even King Herod liked to hear John the Baptist preach. That is until he started calling out his sin. And then notice not only how he describes this group of people, but notice what he doesn't say about them. He doesn't say anything about their faith. And isn't faith in Christ the true mark of a believer. And it's not mentioned at all. And so while I can see other arguments, I can see and appreciate other viewpoints on this, I, would, I, I believe this is likely referring to people that are a part of the pilgrim church, but who haven't truly, through faith, been anchored to Christ, and they are in danger of going back to Judaism, or they are in danger of going back to some other works-based system for salvation, and those who do so, who have heard the gospel preached, who have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, and still reject Christ to go work for their salvation instead, what we see in this passage is that at best, it is really unlikely that they can come back into the body of Christ, and at worst, it's impossible. Now, we don't have time to break down that impossible talk this morning. I believe in the end that for anyone to repent of working for their salvation and start trusting in Christ in their own strength, that is impossible. But we also know what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 26, that with man, yes, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And therefore, I believe as long as someone is here on earth and Christ has not returned, I believe there is an invitation for them to repent of their sin and trust in Christ. Our author then goes on to an illustration which should remind us of the parable of the sower. Look at back at verse 7, Hebrews 6, verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. 
All right, life-giving rain rains down on the surface of the soil, but just like an anchor on a ship, we don't know what's happening below the surface in this agricultural illustration until we see the fruit that is produced. And true believers will bear good fruit. So what's the application here? Let's all take a deep breath, okay? We're kind of done with the, the classroom setting, okay? Everyone okay? Everyone's still in the room. That's pretty good. Okay. I know I just threw a lot at you. What's the application here? What's, like, what, what, what can we walk away from this with? I, I believe regardless of what view you have of who this group of people is, the, the exhortation is probably the same. The exhortation is to keep believing, to go on to maturity, to build upon the foundations of the faith. And if you're not, be warned. Like if you're content to stay in spiritual infancy, you need to do some serious prayerful examination of your heart this morning to see if you have true saving faith or not. Do you have an anchor? And is your anchor going to hold. True saving faith is a faith that endures and bears fruit, so keep believing. Are you anchored to Christ? Or are you anchored to your mom and dad and their faith? Are you anchored to your pastors or your city group? Are you anchored to your good works and your right living? Do you see fruit in your life? It might be slow-growing fruit, but do you see fruit in your life? Or are you just tasting what others here are eating? Are you just a companion of the work of the Holy Spirit? Or are you a temple of the Holy Spirit? Have you been given a new heart? Have you repented and believed? Now, the reason that I tried to get through that first few verses fairly quickly. And the reason I didn't just preach a whole sermon on those verses, there was enough there to talk about, is because verse 9, verse 9, it bound my conscience that a complete sermon could not just be verses 4 through 8. We, we can't just end with a confronting and a questioning of whether or not people are anchored. That doesn't give us the full picture of what's happening here without going on to verses 9 through 20. All right, this is all one thought. Look now at verse 9, Hebrews 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Like, why, why couldn't you have led with that, man? We just spent hours trying to figure out who you were talking about these last few verses and whether or not they could come back or if it's impossible or what all this stuff. And now he's like, but yeah, verse 9, you know, though we speak about that, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
So you remember this group of believers that's receiving uh, this letter to the, to, to the Hebrews or this group of sermons to the Hebrews. They've already been through some hardships and persecution. But more is headed their way. And how are they to live in light of that? Who are they to imitate? We again see a call to not be sluggish or dull, but instead to be diligent. And they are to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Church, those who are anchored live by faith with patience as ones who are waiting on the promises of God to be fulfilled. Let me remind you that God promised Abraham that he would have a great multitude of offspring like the stars in the sky and that through his family line that all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. That's a big promise. And what's miraculous about Abraham's faith and patience is that God gave Abraham this promise and he kept reiterating this promise when Abraham was really old and he had no kids. Abraham had to have faith that God could make the impossible possible. And he had to wait for God's promise to be fulfilled. Church, how must we live as ones who have been anchored to Christ, who have received great promises of eternal life with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, where the, where the water is going to be sweeter and the grass is going to be greener and the light is going to be more enjoyable and there's going to be work but no toil and tears are going to be a thing of the past. How do we live as ones who have received that kind of promise and yet right now it feels like we are on a boat that's getting tossed and turned by the wind and the rain? How are we to live? We're going to need faith. And we're going to need patience. What areas of your life right now do you need to be exhibiting more faith, more trust, more reliance, more dependence? And what areas of your life right now do you need to have more patience? Patience. But listen, church, we can only endure in faith and patience if we are anchored to Christ. And in these next few verses, yes, we will see Abraham's faith and patience, but notice the much more stronger point of emphasis on God's faithfulness. This should give us great encouragement. These next few verses should give us great encouragement because it was not that God's faithfulness was dependent upon Abraham's faith. But in fact, it was Abraham's faith that was dependent upon God's faithfulness. So let's look back, all right? Abraham, look back to Hebrews 6, verse 13. Abraham trusted that God was faithful to fulfill his promises. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Oaths that were given in ancient Israel, and even sometimes today, you know, we used to put our hand on the Bible or something like that to swear an oath. Uh, These oaths, they had to appeal to a higher power. And by appealing to this higher power, it gave the witness more credibility and it confirmed that what they were about to say was going to be a truthful thing. Because people are liars. And so they have to swear by someone greater in order to have a chance of anyone believing what they say. When God gives an oath or a promise, he has no one greater to swear by. He is the supreme being in the universe. He is at the top of the truth pyramid. There is no one more credible than him. And therefore, he swears by himself. God comes in and confirms once again that he will be faithful to fulfill all his promises to Abraham. See here that Abraham's faith is dependent upon God's faithfulness. And ours is as well. And then we can be greatly encouraged by these two unchangeable things we see in this passage. We see two unchangeable things. First, that God's character does not change. And we see then that God's promises and purposes do not change. What great encouragement that can be for us. His character will not change, and his promises and his purposes will not change. Therefore, the more we learn about his nature and character, the more we learn about his promises, the more encouraged we will be. The more stable and secure we will be in life because we know that while everything else in creation is constantly changing, God is not I mean, how many of you have been discouraged to try to learn some different new technology and try to master it, and then six months later, it's just outdated. It's changed, right? It's like, what's the point of even trying to learn that? That's not the same with God. Learning about God's nature, learning about his promises and his purposes, those things never change. They will give you a lifetime of stability and security and safety and encouragement to know who God is and to know what his promises and purposes are. You need to keep God's promises close to you. And there are several books that do this, that compile all the verses that we have in the scripture about the promises of God. One is by uh, Samuel Clark. Uh, He's got one called Precious Bible Promises. There's even a version that's combined with Spurgeon's Morning and Evening Devotional. Get those promises of God close to you. Learn them. Know them. Be encouraged by them. And so, church, when we come to Hebrews 6, 
I mean, we can acknowledge that the, the, the start of this chapter is a bit confrontational for those that are not anchored to Christ. But this chapter, not only is it confrontational, it is also so comforting. It is also so encouraging to those who are trusting Christ and are anchored to him. Because we can rest in the fact that God is faithful to fulfill all his promises. God is faithful to fulfill all his promises. Numbers 23 verse 19. God's word says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Rest in the fact that God is faithful to fulfill all his promises. We can be encouraged and take comfort in what Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 1 verse 6 when he said, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or what about when Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 3. He writes, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. This is why Peter can describe the eschatological church in 1 Peter 1 verse 5 as ones who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Church, his faithfulness is not dependent upon our faith. Our faith is dependent upon his faithfulness and God is faithful to fulfill all his promises. And so church, I don't want you just to taste him or just to experience him. I want you to know him, to be united to him. I want you to be ones who by grace through faith have been anchored to him. Hebrews 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Oh, church, that inner place in the temple, that holy of holies. The people were separated from it because of their sin. They were separated from the presence of God. A thick curtain was put in between them. And that's what our sin does. It separates us from God. But if your faith is in Christ, then you have a sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. And this is not an anchor that is thrown into the sea, but an anchor, in fact, that tore the curtain open and that ascended into heaven and is now in the presence of the Father. And therefore, whatever happens down here, through faith in Christ, you are stable and secure because you have an anchor in heaven. And therefore, if you've been united to him through faith, what is true of him is true of you. If he stands righteously before the Father, you stand righteously before the Father. If he is accepted by the Father as a son, you are accepted by the Father as a son or daughter. If he is safe and secure in his standing, then you are safe and secure in your standing. 
You see, we feel sure of better things for those whose anchor is Christ because his promises are sure, his purposes will prevail, and his priestly prayers are unceasing. If your anchor is Christ, then your anchor will hold because his promises are sure, his purposes will prevail, and his priestly prayers are unceasing. Now, Pete, Judd, and Josh's story was similar to what we saw in the last few days of Jesus' life here on earth. Peter and Judas, were you guys tracking with me on that? Some, some of you are just now catching up. That's okay. <laughs> Peter and Judas both went through some stuff in the final hours of Jesus' life. Up until that point on the surface, they both looked like they were legit disciples of Jesus. But when the storm came, both had some big struggles. Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. Both were drifting into dangerous waters. Both felt remorse and had a guilty conscience about what they had done. But Peter in the end was restored and Judas was not. What was the difference? One was anchored to Christ through faith and the other was not. One believed that God's promises were sure and his purposes would prevail. One did not. One experienced the priestly prayers of Jesus. The other saw no need for it. He had his 30 pieces of silver. That would take care of him. But Peter experienced the priestly prayers of Jesus. And Jesus in Luke 22, 31 and 32 says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Church, if your anchor is Christ, your anchor will hold. Therefore, keep believing. Keep Believing his promises are sure. His promises are sure. His purposes will prevail. And his priestly prayers are unceasing. We have an anchor in heaven. Daniel Towner was a, a music director in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He wrote a hymn titled, My Anchor Holds. And I'd like to read a portion of it to you this morning as we close. He writes, I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast. And the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between. Through the storm I safely ride till the turning of the tide. And it holds. My anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bark so small and frail. By his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds. My anchor holds. Church, if your anchor is Christ, your anchor will hold. Keep believing. Let's pray.